Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As longtime listeners of our program know, each and every uh, episode, I interview a uh, rabbinic colleague about uh, the weekly parasha, the section of the Torah that is read in synagogues Monday, Thursday, and Friday. This week, we're going to make a slight exception as our uh, discussion will center around um, a book of the Tanakh, a book of the Jew, of the Hebrew scriptures known as the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is read in synagogues throughout the world the afternoon of Yom Kippur, the most holy of days on the Jewish spiritual calendar. Um, it is the Day of Atonement. The story of Jonah is well known. Uh, it has been presented as uh, a child's story, uh, both in print and in animation, but it is far from a children's story. Um, it is a uh, significant and important story that found its way into the canon of the Hebrew Bible. My guest this morning is Rabbi Simcha Bob, a retired congregational rabbi, currently serving as an adjunct faculty member at Wheaton College and Elmhurst College in the suburbs of Chicago. For 35 years, he served as congregational rabbi at Congregational Eitz Chaim, also in the western suburbs of Chicago. Rabbi Bob is the author of a fascinating book entitled Jonah and the Meanings of Our Lives. Um, and he has written a chapter on each of the 48, 48 verses in the book of Jonah, uh, drawing on the most accessible of the Hebrew commentaries on other biblical sources, traditional wisdoms, and uh, illustrations from popular culture. It is a pleasure to welcome Rabbi Simcha Bob to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. It's a pleasure to be with you to talk about my favorite subject. I thought this might be a perfect place uh, for you and I to have a conversation. And so let's begin with um, what appears to be a simple question, but may in fact not be so simple. And that is, um, why was the book of Jonah chosen to be read? on uh, Yom Kippur afternoon. So Yom Kippur is the day of atonement, the day in which we want to, we ask God to forgive us for our sins. We want to make ourselves right with God as the new year begins. Uh, Yom Kippur afternoon is the concluding hours, marks the concluding hours of Yom Kippur. And we have one last chance to state our case for God. The Haftarah of Jonah shares a story of God's forgiveness, that God gives second chances. All people want second chances. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh to be a prophet, and Jonah runs away. There's a big storm. 
Jonah gets thrown into the sea. The big fish swallows Jonah. From the belly of the big fish, Jonah prays for forgiveness. And God forgives Jonah, and the fish deposits Jonah back on dry land. At that point, God could have said to Jonah, okay, I forgive you for running away. Go home. I'll find somebody else to send to Nineveh. I've got Elijah around here somewhere. Elijah's a good prophet. I'll send Elijah. But no, God gives Jonah a second chance. God puts Jonah in exactly the same situation in which Jonah had failed. And God again calls upon Jonah to go to Nineveh. And this time Jonah goes. God fully forgives Jonah. We want to be fully forgiven. Later in the book, God forgives the people of Nineveh when they repent from their sins. A second story of forgiveness and a second, second chance. This is what we hope we will get on Yom Kippur, a second chance. And we read the book of Jonah to remind ourselves, and I suppose in a certain way to remind God, of the possibility of second chances. So if it's a simple story of repentance and second chances, it seems embedded in um, mythology that um, makes it challenging for the everyday reader to recognize the power of this book. I mean, for most people, the image of the whale is the most prominent image. Um, There has been an updated version of the story of Pinocchio that's been released by Walt Disney. And in the story of Pinocchio, he's swallowed by a big fish. And sometimes people confuse Pinocchio and Jonah. So let's just take this one example. What's the purpose of the big fish? Which, as you so correctly remind our reader, is not called a whale in the story, but simply a big fish. So I will agree right away that the Jonah story is a little bit over the top. Um, And the idea of... (laughs) (laughs) um, I, I think it's a tall tale filled with exaggerations on purpose. The evil of the people of Nineveh is the worst evil, and the storm that encompasses the ship is the worst storm, and Jonah is able to be in the belly of the big fish for three days and three nights. And then Jonah goes to Nineveh and says a handful of words, and the people of Nineveh, who've never heard from a prophet from Israel before, repent immediately. All the prophets of the Hebrew Bible come and speak to the people of Israel and Judah, for for generations, and nobody repents. Jonah says a handful of words, and everybody repents. It's exaggeration. In chapter 3 of the book of Jonah, the people of Nineveh begin repenting. And what they do, they fast and they put on sackcloth. The text also says that the large animals of Nineveh, the cows, the cattle, put on sackcloth and fast. It's over-the-top exaggeration. I spend three weeks every summer in Wisconsin, America's dairy land, and I have never seen a contrite cow. (laughs) Um, Animals don't repent. But in the book of Jonah, the animals repent. So the big fish, I think, is an entertaining way of prolonging Jonah's life and giving Jonah an opportunity to turn back towards God. The Jonah tries to flee. I certainly think that when the sailors threw Jonah into the sea, 
How did they throw him in? We don't know, but I imagine one, two, three. And then there's a moment where Jonah's flying off the side of the ship and before he hits the water, that Jonah thinks, this is the end of my life. And then when the fish swallows him, what does he think? Does he think that God has sent the fish to digest him as one last punishment? But no, at some point he realizes that the fish is there as a vehicle of salvation, not the vehicle of destruction. But it takes him three days in the belly of the fish, quoting the text, to recognize that. Three days before he prays. It takes us a while. It takes human beings a while to understand and accept responsibility for their deeds. We we make mistakes. And the the first response to making a mistake is, no, I didn't do it. (laughs) Or, no, it's not going to be so bad. No, it's not what you think. (laughs) It was my brother. I mean, there's all sorts of human defense mechanisms that we click into before we click into, yes, I did it. Yes, I caused damage. Yes, it's my responsibility. Yes, I am sorry for what I did. And there's stages. There's stages of repentance. So it takes Jonah a while to work through the stages of repentance. I mean, I I think we can make an argument that this is where we have Yom Kippur, a day of atonement, rather than just an evening of atonement. Uh, we say the prayer is on or an the hour of atonement. An hour of atonement. That's right. Yes. Rega shall read a moment of Hebrew. No, we have a. We need a whole twenty-four hours to really work our way through this process of repentance. For our listeners who may not be familiar with the specifics of the Day of Atonement, Hebrew uh, festivals and Hebrew holy days begin in the evening and conclude the following evening, usually a sign to begin at sunset of uh, one day and conclude at sunset of the next day, a full 24 hours. The Day of Atonement, known as Yom Kippur, is um, described in the Torah, um, but very differently as it is described as a uh, day of atonement that is observed through sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem or in the Torah at the tabernacle. Once the temple is destroyed, uh, prayer is the replacement for sacrifice, and Yom Kippur then becomes 24 hours of prayers divided into the evening service, the morning service, the afternoon service, and uh, another evening service. During that time, for those who are not uh, regulars attendees at synagogue services or who are unfamiliar, the prayers are uh, unique to the day, and they direct our attention to the notion of repentance. Uh, we can spend much more time on the prayers in particular, but you're certainly able to search that out on the web if you're interested. So I want to use our time uh, with Rabbi Bob on this interesting uh, book of Jonah. And um, he's described a bit about the whale, but I want to uh ask him why the heroes of the story seem to be pagans. (laughs) That um, as you called our attention to the sailors and the people of Nineveh, um, the sailors seem to be men of faith. 
chapter one ends by um, the following verse. The men feared the Lord greatly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord, not to their God. It's not assumed in the text that um, they are uh, Israelites or Hebrews, and they made vows. And then, of course, um, in chapter 3, as you called our attention to, uh, verse 5, it said, the people of Nineveh believed God. So the people who are identified as pagans or non-Israelites believe God. And Jonah the prophet, by the way, I hope you'll remind our listeners of how he is such a minor prophet, um, whose role outside of this book is clearly not um, understood. But why are the sailors and the people of Nineveh held up as such uh, wonderful exemplars of faith? One of the themes of the book of Jonah and of the interpretive tradition that developed over the centuries is this question of how are the nations of the world or the peoples of the world in general in relationship with the one God? So here, the sailors in in chapter one, it says each sailor, the sailor eat, prayed each to their own God. So Rashi, the medieval biblical interpreter, says that it's in the singular there because each of the sailors had their own God. The ancient rabbinic tradition imagines that there are 70 nations of the world. And this is a complicated <laughs> mathematical problem growing out of the descendants of Noah. <laughs> but if we would look carefully at the descendants of Noah's story, we'd find 70 different people who have a nation that comes from them. So in the rabbinic imagination, there are 70 nations of the world, and Rashi suggests that on the ship there were 70 sailors. The, the, the Bible book, the book of Jonah, doesn't tell us how many sailors are on the ship, which leaves their interpreters open to the possibility of interpretation. So Rashi says there's people from each of the 70 nations of the world who are polytheists, worshiping a variety of gods. And as a result of seeing the big storm and the big fish and the water get quiet after the water quieting after Jonah's thrown off the ship, they come to understand that there is one God who rules heaven and earth. And that's why they make vows and they become worshipers of the one God. And this, there's a similar argument put forward about Nineveh. Now, Abraham Ibn Ezra, an interpreter from Spain, in the 12th century, takes a different approach. He says, why did God send Jonah to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, a non-Israelite city, the empire that is, in the fullness of time, going to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel and destroy it? So uh, Jonah being sent to Nineveh would be... Uh, the government of the United States sending me to Tehran. Um, <laughs> not the hospitable... Uh, and asking them to repent. Asking them to repent, and that to their benefit, a rabbi has arrived in Tehran to bring them the truth. Um, so it is a dangerous mission for which there is not much of a likelihood of um, success. Now, Abraham Ibn Ezra says we have to understand who the Ninevites were. Now, he goes through a creative amount of biblical interpretation. He points out that in uh, the third chapter of Jonah, Nineveh is described as a great city to God. Now, most translators translate that as a superlative. It's, oh my God, what a great city. 
So the English text becomes a very great city. But Ibn Ezra says, no, we should take it seriously. And that it was a great city to God, that the people of Nineveh were worshippers of the one God before the time of Jonah. And they had strayed, and that's why God sends Jonah. He also points out that in chapter 3, when the people of Nineveh repent from their sins, there is no description of them tearing down altars to idols. Why? Because they didn't have any altars to idols, because they weren't idol worshippers. And Ibn Ezra also quotes a verse from Isaiah, the saying that God does not count pagans. And, and at the end of the book of Jonah, Nineveh, the residents of Nineveh are, are counted. So that if, if God counts them, that means they're not pagans. So Ibn Ezra says that the people of Nineveh, who were not at Mount Sinai, who did not leave Egypt, had a full and proper relationship with the one God. So is Ibn Ezra suggesting that Jonah is not really sent to the Assyrians, who would be the inhabitants, but he's being sent to the exiled Jews? No, 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 no. This is before the exile. No, he is saying that the Assyrians in the older times, had a proper relationship with the one God. So Ibn Ezra is arguing that the covenant between God and the people of Israel was not exclusive. The people of Israel were, were a chosen people, but that God had other chosen peoples. Now, the theology of the other is a really important question in our time, 21st century time. And to, in the 21st century, to imagine that God can be in relationship with more than one people or with people of more than one religious community, this is something that we can talk about. For Ibn Ezra in the 12th century to say that God can be in relationship with more than one religious community, th this is really an outstanding idea, a very creative idea in the 12th century. And I don't think that Ibn Ezra is most concerned about the religious identity of the people of Nineveh. I think he's most concerned about the religious identity of the people of his own time. So he's trying to work out how, as a Jew in 12th century Spain, do I look at Muslims and Christians? And he's using the Book of Jonah as an opportunity to teach a broader view of, I'll say, I'll say religious pluralism. It's not a term that he would use in the 12th century, but I think that's what he's up, that's what he's up to. But certainly, even the original author... So of the I, I suppose... Ibn Ezra is suggesting very um, directly that the particularism of the Tanakh, in which there seems to be a unique and singular relationship between Adonai and the people of Israel, uh, in Ibn Ezra's eyes, that particularistic God is more of a universal God. For sure. Accessible to all, and that even without uh, conversion, um, people can be part of that covenant. Is that what he's suggesting? I am certain that's what he's saying. So the Ibn Ezra in the 12th century is saying this. To say that the original, the author of the original book of Jonah is saying that might be not exactly accurate. But this is Ibn Ezra's interpretation of it. Okay. And of course, rabbinic interpretation is what's um, enabled us to keep books like Jonah fresh and exciting and allows us each year on Yom Kippur to find something new within the story. Um, 
so I want to thank you for sharing that. And if you could now take a step back, help us understand who this guy Jonah is. Perhaps that's the question we should have begun with, because um, he doesn't play a large role in the Tanakh. Um, and certainly his uh, he's included in the uh, collection of books called the Nivi'im. He's uh, included with some of the very famous prophets like uh, Micah and Amos and Jeremiah and Isaiah. Um, and he's also included with the uh, lesser known prophet, prophets like Haggai and uh, Nahum and Zephaniah and Habakkuk. Um, so is he an A prophet, an A level prophet, A team? Um, is he a major league prophet, a triple A prophet, double A prophet, or maybe a single A prophet, not a rookie league prophet? So the book of Jonah is different from all the other books of prof- other the prophets. In all the other books with a named for a prophet, the book contains mostly words of prophecy and a little bit of narrative or no narrative whatsoever. In Jonah, it's 47 verses of narrative and one verse of prophecy. So already, just in terms of content, it's different. Also, I think that... And and where is the word of prophecy, if you could just help us? In 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. Great. That's That's the only line of prophecy. That's it. Now, so what's going on here? Okay. So to understand what's going on here, it's helpful to understand the meaning of Jonah's name. So in English, we call him Jonah. In the original Hebrew, he's Yonah. Yonah, Hebrew speakers will recognize the word Yonah means dove. So you can ask, where else in the Hebrew Bible does a dove appear? It's in the the Noah story. Now, I think there's a strong parallel between the two stories. In the Noah story, Noah sends the dove out twice. First time the dove comes back, having not completed its mission. The second time, the dove comes back with a twig of an olive branch in its beak. God sends Jonah the prophet out twice. The first time he fails, the second time he succeeds. The book of Jonah and the Noah story are the only two stories in the entire Hebrew Bible in which people are on a boat. Nobody else is on a boat. Most importantly, both stories have to deal with with the destruction of people because they're evil. That in the Noah story, everybody on earth is destroyed because everybody is evil. In the book of Jonah, the people of Nineveh are told they're going to be destroyed because they're evil, but they're not. They repent. Why? Because God sends a prophet. In the Noah story, no warning is given to the population of the earth. I think that there's a reasonable chance that the Jonah story was written as a response to the Noah story that the Noah story appears quite harsh. We think of the Noah story as an entertaining story of animals on an ark. Many listeners, I'm sure, have seen a mobile hanging over an infant's crib of Noah's ark with animals, smiling animals on it, and a giraffe sticking its neck out the window, as if this is a delightful children's story, but it's a horror story. Everybody on earth, except for Noah and his family, have been killed. All the animals, except for the few animals on the ark have been killed. It's a horror story. And the people say, read the Noah story and say, why weren't the people warned? Why didn't they get a second chance? 
And here the Jonah story, I think, is written as a response to the Noah story. And if we hear Jonah's name to mean dove, we'll hear it strongly that it's written taking elements from the Noah story and adding a new element of the warning from the prophet. I hadn't heard um, that comparison made so eloquently, and it suggests that um, Noah is more than ever to be seen as a foil, um, that as opposed to Amos and Micah and Isaiah and Jeremiah, who have a true message to bring in a historical context, I could add other prophets, Jonah seems to fit within um, the paradigm of books like the Book of Esther, um, in which they are stories created um, with intentionality uh, to deliver a message to the people of Israel. No, I think Jonah's much more wisdom literature okay. than it is a prophetic book. I mean, if somebody gave me the opportunity to reorganize the Bible, which is not going to happen, I would put Jonah next to Esther and to Job rather than where it currently sits. I'm hoping that our listeners are following uh, Rabbi Bob's wisdom, because if you haven't read the 48 or 49 verses of this uh, text, it is worth uh, listening to Rabbi Bob and some of the wisdom he's presented to us, and uh, then looking at the text. And in particular, um, one would have a good time, and perhaps a very interesting time, taking the book of Jonah and doing exactly what Rabbi Bob has suggested and comparing it to the Noah story in the book of Genesis. And he's offered the opinion, and I think there's great wisdom there and seeing the similarity in the Hebrew between Yonai, uh, Jonah, and Yonah, the dove. Uh, and following from that comparison, he's given you great insight as to why this story is probably not really a story of prophecy. Um, and Asking the question of why it's placed in the book of prophets would uh, require more time than we have left in this morning's show. Uh, but uh, I'm so thankful um, for the wisdom that you've offered. One other question in the time that's uh, available to us. And I want to ask you whether the uh, individual who we call Jonah is mentioned anywhere else in the Hebrew scriptures. So there's one verse in 2 Kings that mentions him. During the reign of Jeroboam II, he sent on a mission. So I believe fully that he's a historic character, um, and but I think that the author of the book of Jonah takes this verse from 2 Kings and builds a larger story to teach a lesson based on the earlier historical character. So he really is placed in the Book of Prophets, but nothing about his story uh, resonates as a book of prophecy. As you've suggested, there's only one uh, um, short verse of prophecy, and the rest is narrative, and more easily compared to Esther and Job as a medium for conveying some sort of message. I, and I think serious Bible scholars would agree that the Book of Jonah was written during the Second Temple period. 
It's not. It wasn't written during the period in which it it set. Was written later and set earlier. But it's 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 wisdom literature. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Simcha Bob, Rabbi Emeritus of Eitz Chaim Congregation, um, and scholar on the Book of Jonah. I want to thank him for helping us understand this text. This morning's broadcast can be found on uh, chri.ca website on iTunes or on YouTube. For Rabbi Stephen Garten and Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I wish you shalom and a good day. Mm-hmm.